You know, when you have a, a child, a baby, it doesn't take you long to realize that that child thirsts. And that's what we're talking about today. We're in John chapter 7. Uh, William Langavishi, in his book, Sahara Unveiled, he talks about an Algerian who is traveling across the Sahara Desert and his truck breaks down. He's not alone. An assistant is with him. And it doesn't take them long to dehydrate, to begin to thirst. They begin to uh, be willing to drink almost anything. What they do during the day is lie under the shade of the truck. They dig a a shallow trench under the truck. And so in the, the heat of the day, they're lying under the truck in the shade, trying to conserve what they have of water in their bodies. They do have food with them, but they're afraid to eat it for fear that that might increase their thirst. How long can a human being survive without water? About three or four days. That's not very long. Three or four days. So dehydration, not starvation, most often kills wanderers in the desert. And thirst is one of the most terrible of human thirsts. Laglag and his friend, they go from ordinary thirst to a temporary intense thirst to a sustained excessive thirst to what's called polydipsia. That's when you are willing to drink anything to quench your thirst. Even Coke. (laughs) In order to survive, what they do is they drink radiator fluid. That's poisonous. They end up surviving because someone rescues them three weeks into their ordeal. Now, think about the poison that they were drinking. People are drinking poison all over the place. Why? Just ask the drug addict or the alcoholic, or the gambler, or the sex addict, or the materialist, or the gamer. Why are they drinking what they drink when what they drink will never satisfy their souls? They will always long for more. Thirst. That's our human condition. The word that's used in the text that we're going to read today, what it talks about is a passionate longing for something without which we think we can't survive. What could quench our thirst? Could someone help us quench the thirst that we so naturally have? Let's go to John chapter 7. John 7. And uh, Ray is going to come help us. I love your name, Ray. Your parents chose a really good name. John chapter 7, 1 to 13, and then 37 to 39. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee... He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if they seek to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that his works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers have gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, No, he is leading people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those believe, uh, who believed in him were to receive, as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Great. Thank you, Ray. That was awesome. Thank you. Now, as we hear um, Ray read those words, we probably have some questions about thirst. Let's just hold on to those questions. Did you notice that Jesus said that he would do something and then he, he didn't do it? He went in a different direction. Why? Well, Jesus says to his brothers that he's not going up to the feast because he's not going to go on his brother's terms. Jesus follows the Father's timeline. He ends up going to the feast according to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, being guided by the Father. He will go, but it will be on the Father's terms. Just as in chapter 6, Jesus did not allow the crowds to crown him king on their terms. In that moment, he says, not according to your terms, but according to my Father's. So he, in this moment, decides to only go to the feast at his Father's bidding. The people around Jesus in this text, they have a lot of questions about him. The the most important question for them is, who is Jesus anyways? To understand the story, we need to understand something about the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths, it was also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, and it happened about six months after the Passover. So remember the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus walking on the water. Those events happened around the Passover. The Feast of Booths is about six months later, September, October. It was the most important of all feasts, according to Josephus, the most well-attended at least. Perhaps not the most important from God's perspective, but for the people, the most joyous, the most festive. And so many would come. You can imagine the city of Jerusalem full of people, people around the city. Jesus' brothers suggest to Jesus, hey, if you really want to be known, why not go to this feast? It's an opportune moment. And truly, it would be. But Jesus will not go until the Father allows him to. What was unique about this feast? Well, on the first day of the feast, those that had come to participate and those living in Jerusalem, they'd be grabbing bulrushes, twigs, palm, willow. And they would weave together the twigs and the bulrushes into huts, booths. And they would live in these huts or booths during the week, the Feast of Booths. The feast going for seven days. Why would they do that? Well, they were remembering the journey of the Israelites through the wilderness. And so these booths, they were happy reminders of how God had provided for the people of Israel in the wilderness. God had provided manna, water from a rock. God had quenched their thirst. So that was, a, was what they were remembering. That had happened in the past. In the present They were thinking about the harvest. This was the time of the fall harvest, the time to harvest olives and grapes. And so they would even hang these olives and grapes in their little huts or booths, remembering God's provision in the present. And what else was happening in the present? Well, Jesus was there among them. And some considered Jesus to be their provision. Others, not so much. The people have questions Some think that he's good, verse 12. It says he's, some believe he's good. Others believe that he's actually leading people astray. 
People are muttering about Jesus. No one speaks about him freely for fear of the leaders. Some want to arrest him and kill him. In the middle of the feast, Jesus goes to the temple and he stands up and begins to teach. People marvel at his teaching. In fact, some say in verse 15, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And then after hearing some more of his teaching, there are some in the crowd who say, you have a demon. The story continues. People are trying to evaluate what they're seeing, what they're hearing. If Jesus is speaking openly in the in the temple, some surmise, if he's actually permitted to teach in the temple openly, could it be that the authorities have come to the realization that he actually is the Christ? Verse 31, some ask, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Obviously not. So some conclude, well, this is the prophet. This is the Christ. Others ask, Is the Christ the Messiah to come from Galilee? Isn't Jesus from Nazareth? And according to the scriptures, isn't Jesus or the Messiah to come from Bethlehem? Bethlehem of Judea? The city of David? The chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious elite, they want him arrested, and so they send the temple police to arrest him. But as the temple police listens to Jesus, they respond, no one ever spoke like this man. And even Nicodemus shows up who uh, went to Jesus at an earlier Passover, had conversation with him about being born again, about new life, about entering the kingdom. And he says to the religious leaders, well, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And that just draws a visceral reaction from the religious leaders. Are you too a part of Jesus' crowd? Don't you know that a prophet never comes from Galilee? Why is Jesus so polarizing? There are those in the crowd that say, oh, he's a good man. And others, no, he's deceptive. There are those that say, oh, he's an educated man. Others, that he's demon-possessed. There are those that say he's the anointed one of God. And others, no, he's evil. Why is Jesus so polarizing? You know, If we're going to go to Jesus and have him actually quench our thirst in our day, we need to land on something that the disciples on on that day, the Feast of Booze, something that they needed to land on. We need to land on the fact that Jesus has never been a neutral figure. So we should not be surprised when he continues to polarize people in our day. Jesus has never been neutral. He was not a neutral figure 2,000 years ago. He is not a neutral figure today. He continues to polarize people. You know, in our politically correct world, sometimes we want to be at peace with everyone. We value that kind of peace. But if we're following Jesus, that will not be our privilege. Jesus did not intend to give us that privilege. Even on that day, When he was confronted by his brothers, he said to them, you know, the world hates me because I reveal to the world that its ways are evil. Later, as he's going, uh, talking to his disciples, he'll say to his disciples, you know, the world hates me. It will hate you as well. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome 
the world. Now, one of the reasons that people see Jesus in different ways, or one of the reasons that Jesus is a polarizing figure, is that people go to different places to satisfy their thirsts. That was happening in Jesus' day. It happens to this day. People go to different places to satisfy what they believe to be their true thirst. Yu Kai Cho is a gamification expert. What is gamification? Well, he defines it this way. Gamification, it takes all of the fun and engaging elements found in games and it applies them to real-life activities, productive activities. So the worlds of gaming and social media, they appeal to our motivations, to our feelings, to our insecurities. That's why we're drawn to games. That's why we're drawn to social media. They keep us engaged, and they want to keep us engaged as long as possible. So when you think of things like Farmville, or Candy Crush, or Facebook, or Instagram, or Twitter, all of that is designed with us in mind. These things are human-focused. Yu Kai Cho is a committed Christian, and he's developed something that's called octalysis. You can Google that later. It's just the union of two words, uh, octagon and analysis. And what he has discovered through his research is that we have eight uh, core drives. We could call them thirsts. We as human beings are driven by at least eight things. What are they? One, we desire a sense of meaning, of calling, of purpose. We want to be engaged in something bigger than ourselves. That's one of the reasons why people participate in Wikipedia. Secondly, we want to develop and accomplish things. We want to overcome challenges. So we get excited when we receive points or badges. We want to be empowered. We want to be creative. And so people are drawn to Pinterest. A fourth drive. We want social acceptance. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. So Facebook. My wife gets really excited when someone likes her post or someone loves what she's written. You do as well, not only my wife. We want a sense of ownership. And so people play Farmville. Sometimes we want something because we can't have it, like a parking spot. Another drive is is, is just a fear that something negative is going to happen, that we're going to miss an opportunity. And then an eighth drive is the uncertainty of what will happen next, and that's what drives gambling or playing the lottery. What was driving the religious leaders in Jesus' day? Why were they struggling so much with Jesus' presence among them? Well, if Jesus actually becomes the leader of Israel... Will they lose their position of status? What they possess, what they believe they possess is religious authority. If Jesus becomes the leader in Israel, will they lose their authority, their status, what they possess? Will they have less space if Jesus continues to emerge? Will negative things happen? Will the Romans come and crush them? You see, Jesus is challenging all of their core motivations. And so they respond with a visceral negative reaction when Jesus appears. What are the opinions about Jesus in our Canadian context? 
There was a time in Canada when most people would have accepted Jesus as a historical figure to be admired, a religious figure, a really good moral teacher. Even if people would not have submitted to Jesus as Savior and Lord, they would have said, no, Jesus provides a good moral framework for our society. He speaks about love. He speaks about justice. He talks about good things, things that we value. More recently, Jesus has been tied to something really negative, or at least it's viewed as being very negative, something called Western colonial oppression. And so Jesus is tied to things like residential schools, like the raping of the land. And as people try to shed this Christian past, which is viewed as being negative, they feel that they need to move beyond Jesus as well. We live in a world of identity politics. What's identity politics? Well, people define themselves. They position themselves based on the needs of their particular social group. That's what's most important. And of course, they believe their needs, their thoughts, what they believe to be true, to be acceptable. It's good. And what if Jesus challenges what people believe to be true? What if Jesus doesn't include everyone the way that people just want to be included as they are. What if he actually calls for change? One of the highest values in Canada is inclusion. No need to change, just everyone be included as they are. Each person can define himself or herself as he or she chooses. No need for change. What I believe to be true is true. You must accept what I believe to be true. So if that's the message of our society, then what do people do with Jesus when Jesus appears to be somewhat exclusive? If Jesus is who he says he is, there may be something bigger, a larger story that God is writing that we have to submit to. For many, that's a hard pill to swallow. If Jesus actually is Lord, do I lose ownership of my life? What do I do if Jesus challenges who I want to be? (laughs) When I want to be? How I want to be? What do I do if Jesus challenges the very group where I have found social acceptance? What do I do if Jesus challenges my view of human origins? What if he challenges the way that I view life and value certain things? What do I do if he challenges my view of the future? What if Jesus shatters my whole world view? Jesus continues to polarize people to to this day. Now, we need to learn something from Jesus. In John chapter 7, he's a polarizing figure. How does he stand firm in the midst of all kinds of tension and controversy? Well, as you read through this chapter and you hear the teaching of Jesus, you realize that Jesus understood who he was. He could stand firm because he was very secure in who he was. What does he say? He says, I came from the Father. I was sent by the Father. My teaching is from the Father. My authority is from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. I'm following the Father's timeline. I will live for my Father's glory. He knows exactly who he is, why he is there, why he's saying what he says. Now, 
In relation to Jesus, we have to decide who he is. You can't stay neutral. C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, writes this, and I think it's an amazing um, piece that he writes. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic lunatic, on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, and that's really crazy, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus was a polarizing figure. He continues to be a polarizing figure. He has never been a neutral figure. So we have to understand that that's just the way it is. And if we're going to stand for Jesus in our day, if we're going to allow him to quench our thirst, then we have to come to an understanding of who he was and who he is and know who we are. Know who Jesus is and know who you are. Well, how? How do we come to this deep understanding of who Jesus is and stand with conviction? How do we come to a deeper understanding of who we are in Jesus? Well, the best way is just to immerse ourselves in the Scriptures, the most well-attested documents in all of history, to read the Scriptures and discover who Jesus is, read his story, written by those closest to him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as we discover who Jesus is, we discover who we are. These basic truths, which are so amazing. First, chosen, as we sang earlier. Chosen, not forsaken. Chosen to to enter into God's story. Adopted into the family of God. We belong. God's treasured possession, valued by the Most High. Called for a purpose, to live for God's glory. Set apart to do good works, as Paul writes in Ephesians, from before the foundation of the world. And so every moment is filled with meaning. All of these good truths outlined in the Gospel of John, outlined in Ephesians and Colossians, the scriptures are rich with these truths. And now a question. So these truths, they are good, they are true. How do they become real for us? How do these things move from the head to the heart? How do they move from being good, rational thoughts, reasoned thoughts, to a lived reality, something that sets us on fire? Well, let's go back to the feast. At the Feast of Booths, it it ran for seven days. Each morning, in the early morning, the high priest would leave the Temple Mount and other priests would walk with him and thousands of worshipers and they would sing as they would go and they would go down to the Pool of Salome, 
the pool of Siloam was fed by an underground spring, living water. So they would go down to that pool and the, the high priest would fill a golden pitcher with living water. And then he would walk back up to the temple mount via another route. Again, the worshipers and priests following him. Coming back to the temple mount, they would go to the altar. And there, at the time of the morning sacrifice, the high priest would pour out the living water on the base of the altar. And at the same time, another priest would be pouring out the wine of the drink offering. Day after day, that would happen. And on the last day of the feast, the high priest, as he poured out that water, would cry out, How long, O Lord? How long? What was he pleading for? Well, again, remember that the Feast of Booths would happen in September, October. The summer season is a really dry season in Israel. Not a blade of grass. It has not rained for seven months. And so one of the things that the priest is crying out for is just provision in that moment. Without rain, there will not be another harvest. And so there's a cry for physical rain. But more profoundly, he's crying out for the coming of the Messiah. He's crying out for a day when the people of Israel would experience salvation. He's crying out for a day when peoples would come from around the earth to Jerusalem to experience that salvation. And it's interesting. Right from its beginning, Excuse me. From its beginning, the Feast of Booths was always for all people. It was for families, young and old. It was for the widow. It was for the orphan. It was for all the people of Israel. It was also for foreigners, for those from around the earth. So the Feast of Booths had always been this amazing statement of hope. For a new beginning separated from the ravages of sin. A a new kingdom, a new day of peace, of righteousness, of joy. The Lord reigning over the whole earth. Peace on earth as it is in heaven. And what happens on the seventh day of the feast? Remember, the high priest has just come back with that pitcher of water. He's poured it out on the altar, and he has cried out, How long, O Lord? And we read in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said, about the Spirit. So Jesus makes this audacious claim, this dramatic statement, that all of the aspirations of the Feast of Booze will be fulfilled in Him, that He can provide living water. So people are there thirsting throughout the centuries. And Jesus says, I have living water for you. He not only quenches the thirst of the human being, but He can actually make rivers flow from us. Jesus says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's actually drawing from many different texts in the Old Testament, blending them together. One of the texts was the text that Pastor James read earlier, Isaiah 55. Another is Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Another text, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you 
and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here's the Feast of Booths, this dramatic statement of hope. And there at the Feast of Booths, Jesus says that people can come to him and drink and he will pour out his Holy Spirit for the people there in Jerusalem and for peoples around the world. He claims to be the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths in every way. He is the one who will go to the cross. He will die and take the sins of humanity upon himself. He will rise again to the right hand of the Father. He will ascend. And there being with the Father, Father and Son will send the Holy Spirit to indwell all those who surrender their lives to Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying in the clearest possible way, I am the source of life and blessing. I alone am the source of the Holy Spirit. I alone am the source of this life-giving stream. Chapter 4, he was at the well with the Samaritan woman, and he said this, John 4, 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And so Jesus says in chapter 7, there at the Feast of Booths, if you come to me and drink Now, he uses the word drink, not sip. Sometimes we would like to treat the Lord this way. Well, I'll just take a taste. Let's see if this tea is good. Jesus says drink. And he meant drink. If we're going to allow Jesus to quench our thirst in our day, then we need to understand that Jesus satisfies our deepest longings and turns us into wellsprings. And the command is, drink it. Don't sip it. Drink the water. Jesus promises so much. How would we ever know whether or not his words are true? It's obvious that we thirst. Every human being thirsts. Here we are, thirsting. What would lead us to truly drink And not just sip. Well, the invitation from Jesus is to surrender our lives completely to him and to ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Wherever we are, whatever the situation, whatever phase of life we find ourselves in, whatever circumstance. Sometimes we treat drinking from these life-giving waters in this way. It's like, okay, there's a spring in North Vancouver, Lynn Headwater Spring. Way over there. I'm here in Burnaby. How am I going to get there? Well, I have to cross the Iron Workers Bridge. And it's rush hour. And it's going to be really hard to get there. So maybe I won't drink today. That's not the kind of offer that Jesus is making. (laughs) You're going to have to really struggle and work hard. Put in a lot of effort to get to the spring. What he's saying is, if you come to me, if you just surrender to me and open your heart to me, I will fill you with my spirit. And that life within you will become a wellspring. What does that look like? Well, if you surrender your 
life to Jesus and drink from his spirit, then Jesus changes your heart. So where there was a hardness toward God, suddenly there's a tenderness. Where there was a hardness toward others, Jesus gives you love. You begin to hunger for the word of God. Why? Because you just want to understand who the Father is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is. And so you hunger for the word. You read the word. You hear God's voice over your life. Jesus fills you with his spirit. And so what becomes evident to those around you more and more is the fruit of the spirit. Love and joy and peace. Patience and kindness and goodness faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. People see the change in you because you've surrendered your heart to Jesus as Lord and the Spirit is at work in you, transforming you into Jesus' likeness. When you think about the will of the Father, it's no longer something that you think, oh my, it's going to constrain me, it's going to restrict me, it's something heavy. No, it's something that fills you with joy. Why? Because you realize that you're chosen and God's will for you is actually really good. It's much better than anything you ever could have imagined. God's writing a story and he's invited you into it. You come to an understanding of your calling. Every moment of your life is filled with meaning. You realize as you wake up in the morning that God actually has good works for you to do on that day. Works that he has planned from before the foundation of the world. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. And so you live your life with a new sense of joy, a new sense of expectation, and you don't do it alone. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. He actually gifts you to do the things that he calls you to do. I realized something this week as I was praying in the morning. I I realized that there was an uneasiness within me, and I also realized that it's not uncommon for me to wake up in the morning and be a bit uneasy. And think, okay, there's a lot that I have to do today, and I'm not sure that I'm going to get it all done. And I'm not sure that I'm going to live up to the expectations of those around me. I'm not sure if I'm going to clue in to all that God has for me. I think I may miss a lot of opportunities. And as I prayed about that, what I heard the Father saying to me through his word was, you know what? That uneasiness, it doesn't come from me. That uneasiness, that kind of drive, that kind of uncertainty, it actually doesn't come from the Lord. It comes from a bad place in my soul. And God actually has something different for me and for you. If we're full of the Spirit, we can actually wake up in the morning and sing praise. Like we sang earlier, Psalm 92. It's good to praise you, Lord. To sing of his love in the morning and his faithfulness at night. To to wake up and realize, okay, God is sovereign over all things and one of the wonderful truths is that God is good. And God loves me and God loves you. And the Holy Spirit is with us. And so no matter what the challenge, no matter what the circumstance, we can actually enter the day full of faith, full of hope, because God is going to do things beyond what we imagine. Because God is present. And that changes everything. So we can actually enter the day full of joy and full of hope, rather than despairing, rather than going from a place of fear. So we begin to sing spontaneously from the heart. And we enter the day with gratitude. 
We enter the day knowing that the Lord is present to quench our thirst, whatever the thirst might be. Because at the end of the day, the only one that can actually quench our thirst is Jesus. And if we have him, then we have everything. There's no need to go back to broken wells and try to, oh man, uh, yeah, I'm following Jesus, but I think in this moment I actually need to go back to another well and try and satisfy my thirst in another way. No, we can go to Jesus, surrender ourselves completely to him, and allow him to do what only he can do, and that is satisfy our thirst and fill us with life, and fill us with so much life that we can actually allow the Holy Spirit to bless other people through us. Not just thinking about our own needs. Not just thinking about us shoring up our own identity, but actually thinking about others around us that have need and want to be served by God through us. So may we drink from that well. Amen? May Jesus satisfy our thirst. That's his desire. That's his offer. Let's pray. Let's stand for prayer. Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, uh, we're before you in this moment, and I, I want to pray for those who are here who maybe have never ever surrendered their lives to Jesus, but today they know that they're thirsty and that they need you, Jesus, as their Savior. And they want to be filled with your Spirit. And so if that's you here today, and you for the first time want to pray to receive Jesus as your Savior, you know that you need forgiveness of sin. You know that you need to have your shame removed. You know that you need to be blessed by the love of God and have that love remove your fear. Then pray with me. Uh, The prayer will be posted on the screen. Pray this prayer with me. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. Please forgive me for leading my own life separate from you. Thank you for dying on the cross, paying the price for all my sin. I repent and surrender to you. I surrender my whole life to you, Jesus. I turn to you for forgiveness and new life. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the person that you created me to be. I want to be like you, Jesus. Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, um, you know, check off the Connect card. Go back to the Welcome Center. We'd love to encourage you in your journey, or you can come forward. Um, Now a prayer for all of us that are following Jesus. Father, we are so grateful that while we were yet sinners, you sent Jesus for our salvation, and you did that out of love, by your grace. Jesus, we don't deserve to be your followers, but we've been called to follow you. Father, by your spirit, you've drawn us to yourself, and so we thank you. It's your doing. Jesus, you invite us to come and drink. And so, Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters, may we drink fully from the wells of salvation, as your word says. 
May we ask daily for the filling of your Holy Spirit. May we walk in your fullness and allow you to fill us with peace and joy and love, the fruit of your Spirit, and may that well spring up within us and be a blessing to those around us. For your glory, Jesus, for the furtherance of your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great weekend.